Okay, put your hands together and let's give a big welcome to Dr. Joseph Davis as he comes. Amen. You know, technical things have never been my forte. Uh, and I don't know if there's any coincidence in you giving away a lot of gas and me being the next speaker. <laughs> well, ladies, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you for uh, your support, at both as a church and uh, those of you who are parents and grandparents, sending uh, your children and grandchildren to Southeastern University. Uh, I believe in the mission of the school. I believe in it because I've read the statistics. The statistics are that somewhere between 60 to 80 percent of those who go to a secular college actually walk away from their faith. And I want to tell you that those who, have, who come to our college and our university at Southeastern, I want to tell you that the vast majority of people there, they are highly trained. Most of the people I work with are PhDs. Let me encourage you, if you're thinking about going to a university, uh, I'd just like to encourage you to come down to Florida. Now, think about it in January. Yes. That's, that's when you want to think about it. And uh, I'd love for you to come on down. Also, I want to thank this church for your support. You have supported Southeastern University as part of your mission. And you should be very proud because Southeastern University sends more missionaries and more pastors than all of the other AG schools that we have. So we've been very, very productive and good stewards of your investment in us. And thank you so much for your vision. And thank you, Pastor, for your vision. Uh, would you give yourselves a round of applause? Go ahead. Yeah. Now, uh, if you'd like to go to Israel, you heard pastors say, Dr. Galden and I go. We have a great time. We just love going eight days on the ground, two in the air for a total of 10 days. And uh, you have a cost of, uh, well, about $3,900, $3,995, I think. And everything's included except for candy bars. If you want a candy bar, you buy that on your own. Uh, but uh, if you want to arrange your own travel, we also have an option, too, that you can do that. And the cost is $19.95, I think. So let me encourage you. A lot of people are concerned. Maybe it's not safe to go. If there's any question, we just fly out. Uh, we just refund your money, and we, we just go. We just leave. And I did do some research on this. I found that there's a number of cities in the United States that are much more dangerous than all of the people, all of Israel. And I found that, uh, that Detroit actually has more violent deaths than all of Israel combined. So don't go to Detroit. <laughs> if he makes you feel any better, I'm from Baltimore and the same is true for Baltimore. There's actually more violent deaths in Baltimore than in all of Israel. So come on out with me. Come on out with Pastor. We'd love to take you to the Jordan and baptize you there, to take you to Mount Carmel. I'll call down fire. That's my special specialty from heaven. Yeah, no, that's not true. And we'll take you to some of the places that will just absolutely blow your mind. We have a morning devotional where David wrote his psalms. Ah, amazing. All right, ladies and gentlemen. Enough of that. Let's get to our scripture. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Philippians 1, and we're going to look at verse 21. Philippians 1, 21. This verse and this book was written while Paul was in prison, and what a joy it is to be with you here today. For those of you who are not familiar with me and didn't, weren't here last time, I am a PhD in apologetics, and my specialty is logic and philosophy, ethics, theology. We have to do all of those uh, in apologetics. I heard a lady one time, I was preaching at a church, and it was the evening service, came back, and uh, I overheard her saying, she said, you should hear the gentleman who was preaching today. And the guy said, oh, really? And she goes, yes, he's a PhD. And he said, what is his PhD? She goes, I have no idea. And then she said, I think it's in something like idolatry. I can't remember the name of it. Well, some people worship the mind, but that's not actually what we're going to do. However, I do believe, as Pastor Chris said, you don't have to leave your head at the door to be a Christian. You can bring them both because God wants to redeem them all. Let's go and take a look at our Bible. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And I, if I'm to go on living in this body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two, a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you now and we thank you for the great opportunity that we have to live and, Lord, to love you. We pray now that your Holy Spirit would come into our very midst and lead us into all truth. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. Tell me why I shouldn't kill you. Now, this may be an odd start to a sermon, and I'm going to tell you it's going to be a killer sermon. Oh, come on, you've got to do better than that. Thank you. Well, these are the words that I spoke to my professor in the hallway. Now, it sort of caught him a little bit off guard, but he was a professor of ethics, so I thought it perfectly fair for him to, how shall we say, handle this question. And I figured if you're going to talk about ethics, you might as well get to the root of it. Most people believe that murder is wrong, so let's just ask that question right away. Tell me why murder is wrong. So I walked up to him, and he was a very distinguished man, which just made it all the more fun. And he was walking around, as sometimes PhDs, and I might be the anomaly to that. I, I'm probably not as stuffy as most of them, or the caricature, or at least that's what I tell my other friends who are PhDs. And so I looked at him and I said, Dr. DeBanderberg, can you tell me why I should not kill you? And then I smiled. <laughs> he was a little caught off guard at first. And then he said, oh, oh, okay, it's a game. And I said, we'll see how your answer goes. And then he said, okay, okay, I'll play along. He says, okay, maybe your conscience would bother you. And I said, well, actually, I think you taught us in class that conscience is something developed by culture or maybe by your parents. And so we got a little problem there. First, first of all, culture changes, so that would mean that my conscience could change. And so if my conscience changes, maybe it could change to another position like murder's not wrong. Second of all, cultures collide, and so different cultures have different values. So maybe I'm from a culture that that value doesn't necessarily resonate. And the third thing is culture is made up of individuals, and all societies are merely just the sum total of individuals. So what I want to tell you is that I've already thought this through. I'm an individual, and I believe it's okay to kill. And by the way, it's not a universal standard because obviously murders don't adhere to it. And he goes, yeah, that's true. And I said, well... How do you know that you won't get caught? A perfectly reasonable question, because we see people get caught all the time. But I looked at Dr. DeBanderbar and I said, well, actually, Dr. DeBanderbar, I've done the research, and unfortunately, according to the FBI, the majority of criminals actually don't get caught. I'm willing to tell you that based upon my knowledge of working with people in drug recovery centers, I'm going to tell you that a good number of them are not highly educated. And so I'm going to tell you that I think that I can beat the odds and it's a matter of risk or reward. And by the way, you're not actually telling me it's wrong. You're just saying it's wrong if I get caught. So if I don't get caught, does that mean it's also not wrong? He said, yeah, you're right. That's true. I said, by the way, I'm not going to do it here. I'm going to do it when you least expect it. <laughs> You'll never see it coming. And he goes, oh, that's kind of disturbing. <laughs> and I said, Dr. DeVanderberg, can you tell me why murder is wrong? And he said, how do you know that I don't have a gun, a bigger gun? And I said, actually, you're using my argument, and that argument is might makes right. You've never actually answered my question why it's wrong. All that you've said is I'll shoot you first. I said, so basically, isn't that an argument to power and not necessarily an argument of morality? And he said, yeah, that's true. Then he looked at me, and I'll never forget this as long as I live. He looked at me. And he said, young man, I have something that I want to say to you. And I said, yes, doctor, what is it? And he looked me right in the eye and he said, you're a very sick man. And then he walked away. <laughs> now, that's the truth. I'm not making that up. He looked at me and said, you're very sick. And then he walked away. But what doesn't happen? He never answered my question. And I'm going to tell you why. Because he couldn't. Because what I know, if morality comes from a changing source, by definition, morality will change. And so the question is only, is it a changing source? Because if it's a changing source, all I have to show you is that it does change. And I might pop the question is, maybe it will change some more. For example, you might say, well, maybe you're a sick person because of psychology. Maybe so, but if man is an animal, have you ever seen an animal kill? Say, so, well, you're a rational animal, you're a higher intelligence. So in other words, what you're telling me is the higher your intelligence is, the less evil that you're going to become. So, for example, like in the last hundred years, we've had all this technological advancement, and we've seen our tremendous intellect just simply really explode. And so what occurs is the last hundred years has been some of the most peaceful years in our existence, right? We didn't have anything like the Holocaust. 
No, because we're really quite brilliant. And oh, by the way, just in case you're wondering about brilliance, does anybody want to know where our study in genetics began? Oh, yeah. yes, it was in Nazi Germany. And I don't know if you've noticed that some of the mass murderers have been going shooting people, like in Aurora, California. That was a graduate student with a high IQ. And so Dodiovsky, who is a Russian writer, asked this question. If we really are more ethical because we're moral, why is it that animals don't torture its prey like human beings do? And Dodiovsky says it this way, it seems that human beings' capacity for evil is as great as their intelligence. So ladies and gentlemen, I want to talk to you today, and not just to Dr. Devanderberg, but I want to talk to you today about why God is rational. And I remember a young lady came up to me and she said, give me one good reason why I should believe in God. And I said to her, I'm going to give you three. Now I've elaborated on this since I've spoken to her, but I'm going to tell you today's message is called Three Answers for Alice or Why It's Rational to Believe in God. And a lot of times in church, we come to uh, an understanding that it's merely our faith. And I'm so glad that pastor said this morning, it's not just faith. You want to use your whole brain too. You want to use your brain and your heart. And I'm going to tell you why. Because Jesus said, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy mind soul and strength. And so one of the things that needs to occur in Christianity is that we need to be able to talk about the mind and we got to talk about some of the tough things. And frankly, tonight, one of the things I'm going to let you do is I'm going to have some time that you can ask the hardest question that you can think of. Because I'm going to tell you that I'm convinced that Christianity is the most intellectually powerful system out there of thought, not just faith, but of thought. And I'm not trying to intellectualize my faith. I'm just trying to tell you that God is the best idea going. Now, how can I prove that? And here are the answers that I gave. Number one, I'm going to say it this way. I believe that God's the best idea going because I can live better. Number two, I can die better. Number three, there's credible evidence that there's life after death. And so, if we have the screen, let's begin to throw up some of the, some of the PowerPoints that I have. And I want to show you that not only can we live better, die better, that there's hope for life after death. But let's begin with the first one. I can live better. What does that mean? I can live longer. Now, this is not something that really there's much of a question about. The insurance companies have been doing lots of studies, and not just the insurance companies. Hospitals have been doing studies on people who come to them. And so we have this tremendous study, and it's been confirmed for numerous studies. As a matter of fact, uh, we have a gentleman by the name of Dr. Dale Matthews at Georgetown, and he said this, if, that, if the gospel or God was available in pill form, if we didn't get people taking it, we'd be sued for malpractice. Now what he means by that is the effects upon your biology, the effects upon your body are so great that we know that having a faith in God actually is beneficial to you. And I've often said to people, even if you don't believe in God, you should try because you'll just do better biologically. Here we go. Researchers at Yale University found that deriving strength from religion was one of the strongest survival predictors. This has been confirmed study after study after study. The most recent study to confirm this, and perhaps one with a number attached to it, is a, Dale, a Duke University study by a man named Koenig, K-O-E-N-I-G. And Duke University's Koenig says this, what we've done is we've studied healthy people versus healthy people. Now, why is this important? Frankly, we know that church folks are going to blow everybody else out of the water when it comes to health. Now, you may say to me, well, Dr. Davis, I, I, I mean, I know people who have died young. I understand that. I'm not saying that people don't die young. What I'm saying is, looking at averages and looking at the general population, what we know is church folks do better than anybody else. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Amen. Now, how do we know this? We've studied it. How did we study it? Let me describe how we studied it, which is going to be very important. We studied healthy people. What did that mean? We studied people who did not believe in God, who had healthy lifestyles. That meant you can't smoke. Why? One half, close to half a million people will die in the United States this year from cigarettes. Two, you cannot drink in excess. 75,000 in the United States will die as a result of excess drinking. And number three, one that I was personally sad to hear about, overeating. If you overeat, you could not be part of this study. Yeah. I'm not sure that's a good one. But anyway, that's how they did it. Why? We know that these are issues in longevity. So we studied only people who had healthy lifestyles, meaning don't smoke, no excess drinking, and they don't overeat. What did we find? 
We found that people who go to church who believe in God and have a devotional life, and those were the criteria, they lived on average seven years longer than those who did not believe in God. Seven years. So when people are saying to you, why are you wasting time with religion? You can say it this way, because I've got more of it. <laughs> next one. All right, let's get to our next one. Dr. Michael Gazanga, the leading authority in neuroscience, been on many presidential council, councils, and he says, listen to this, this is interesting, and I'm going to tell you the reason I put this up here is because he doesn't actually believe in God. Now, it might seem strange if you're reading the screen as to what it says. He says he doesn't believe in God, but there's no question that people who do, they have better, better brain functioning. You say, well, that's strange. Why wouldn't you believe in God? He believes it's just a placebo effect. But see, here's the problem with the placebo effect. It doesn't actually work unless you believe it. Yes. So you're going to have to believe it in order for it to be true. And so here's another possibility. So you're saying by definition there isn't a God, and you're sure of that because, of course, you've gotten outside of the universe and been able to tell how this all works. And by the time I'm done, I'm going to question why it would be even rational to believe that. Next one. Those who attend church and believe in an all-powerful God have a much lower depression rate. Simply put, those who do not believe in God are twice as likely to become depressed. Doesn't mean that people don't get depressed who don't go to church, but pure and simple, it makes perfect sense. And I'm going to explain it because my specialty is in logic, so I'm going to explain it as I can in a logical fashion. If, in fact, you believe that this is a meaningless universe and you are an accident, wouldn't that translate to some fiber or fabric of your life? Look at this. If there's a person who believes that their life has meaning, wouldn't their life be meaningful by definition? In other words, if you lived as if life had meaning, by definition, life would be meaningful. The question isn't whether you can do that or not. The question is, does it make more sense to believe in a God and accomplish it? Here's what I mean. If, in fact, you believe in God and you're wrong, bottom line is you'll never know the difference. You'll be food for worms and your brain will be dust. Okay? Am I right? Okay? If there isn't a God, bottom line, you're wrong, you'll never know the difference. What will happen? Bottom line is you'll be happy because your life will be purposeful. You'll believe there's a purpose even if there isn't one. Okay? All right. Now let's work it the other direction. Let's say that, in fact, that you don't believe there's any purpose or meaning to life and life is just a colossal accident. All right, let me explain how this actually works. If, in fact, you believe that, how can you have meaning in your life? In other words, if you begin with the premise there's no meaning, and at the end there's no meaning, wouldn't the middle mean there's no meaning also? Let me give you an example. Some people say, well, I give my life meaning. Yeah, except the universe isn't actually noticing. I mean, I hate to be how should I say, caustic here or sarcastic, but the bottom line is, if you, give the life, if you give meaning to life and the universe doesn't actually notice or care, bottom line is that's what we call a delusion. Let me give you an example. Let's say that this is the universe. Think it through. I have meaning. Did you notice it's not responding? Did you see that? And on that note, so let's do it again. I, 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 have, I, uh, I have meaning, right? I have meaning. Maybe the plants are better. I, 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 I have meaning. I have meaning. Really, 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 really I do. I do, I do, I do, I do, I do. Uh, the plants aren't, don't seem to be responding. So if you begin with the premise that the universe doesn't have meaning, what are you doing? I'm thinking whatever you're doing is meaningless by definition. I'm sorry, but I see no way out of that. So if you ask me, does it make sense that people would be more depressed if in fact they believe that their life is meaningless? Yes. I, I think it makes perfect sense. And I think it's perfectly reasonable. As a matter of fact, I'm going to tell you, and let's go to our next slide, that we've done research on people who've had stressful experience. What's the most stressful experience that psychology says that you can go through? The loss of a child. 
And so what we've done is we've researched people who've lost child, children. And so what we've found is that, in fact, there's all sorts of type, different coping mechanisms for people who lose children. But what we found was the one that seems to work the best is called the religious option. Why? Any of you ever drive across a bridge? Yeah, of course you have. Before you drive across that bridge, we do something called a stress test to it. And what that means is under a heavy load, how will it work? Those of you who are in engineering, you probably know what I'm talking about. And, and some of you, just as those of you who don't have any engineering background, if you, you might see those signs and it says maximum load and it tells you what the load is. What that means is if you're like over that, don't, don't try it because we're thinking that the bridge will break because of the weight is too heavy. And that's what we find happening to people who don't believe in God when tragedy hits. Now, I'm going to tell you that Pastor Chris knows because he's a pastor. And as a pastor, I can tell you I've seen this too. And some of the worst experiences of being a pastor is having to be there when a child dies. And I remember one of the most horrific experiences of my pastor. And that was there was a young lady who had just come back to church. She was actually part of a gospel singing group. Her family had wandered away. They'd just begun to come back. And she was dating this guy. And she left, the, left the guy, her baby with the guy. And she got a phone call from him and said the baby had fallen down the steps. Except when the paramedics got there, they didn't think that was the case. And they said to the young man, this baby doesn't look like it fell down the steps. It looks like it's been beaten. So we're going to ask you and we're going to call the police and you probably just need to tell us what happened. And he said that the baby couldn't, was crying and he couldn't get it to stop. And he just beat his brain in. I remember going to the Hershey Hospital Center there and seeing that little baby on life support. Here was this family who was trying to make their way back to God and this unspeakable tragedy occurred. The doctor came in and he said, Your child will not make it. He has less than 24 hours. And at that moment, the family grabbed hands with one another. And they grabbed my hand and they bowed their head. And softly, beautifully, I began to hear amazing. Sing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now. I see with tears streaming down all of our faces we handed this little baby back to its creator and I walked out of that room and I said to the chaplain there I said what do people do who don't believe in God and he said it's not pretty I said what do you mean he said, well, a lot of times they get angry at God, which is sort of interesting. I said, yes, I imagine it is, since they don't believe in God. But he says, usually they move through that within a day or two, and then they turn on each other and destroy each other. He said, the divorce rate is about 80 to 90%. He said, the bottom line, pastor, is the only people who I see making are people who believe in God. So let's talk stress tests and how this works. What we know is when you go over a bridge, we do a stress test to make sure the load will not collapse the bridge. But what we find out in life is if the load is too heavy, all of a sudden the bridge collapses. 
But oddly enough, what this study proved was that people who go before, who have the hardest time and face the greatest stress, oddly or strangely or paradoxically enough, what the study found is that people who go through the greatest test usually come out on the other end stronger. So when people want to know why you're a Christian, here's the answer. We have a better stress test rating than anybody else. Next slide. The hazard of dying during the years of study for really frequent religious service attenders were 36% less for people who attended services less than once a week. You've just increased your odds of survival by being here today. And so that means if I preach for another hour, I'm thinking it'll go up to 50%. You live longer. You live happier. And now I'm going to say you live more logically. Because all of this could just simply be pie in the sky, a placebo effect. And, and in all honesty, I'm willing to admit that placebos effect do affect people. I don't doubt that at all. But what I'm not willing to admit is that, in fact, the reason of my faith is a placebo. And here's why. You see, I've actually studied astrophysics. I've actually studied some of these things. And I'm going to tell you what we've been seeing. What we've seen is that the number of things that have to come together in order for any life to exist on this planet is 10 to the 53rd power. That's the physicist Roger Collings, Richard Collings, excuse me. And what he says is the number of things that have to come together is 10 to the 53rd power. Everybody do a favor for me. Breathe in. Now breathe out. That's 10 to the 53rd power. Now for those of you who aren't good in math, that's not 10 plus 10, that's 10 times 10. And the difference is our second number is 100 as opposed to 20 and just keep multiplying. And so what this physicist says is the odds of this occurring are astronomically against it. Now, I was at a uh, doubt night, which I do, where I ask people to ask questions, their hardest questions, and a gentleman said to me, well, but Dr. Davis, what you're not seeing is that it already has occurred, and so what it means is it's logical to believe that it could occur in another universe. No, it's not. Because you've misunderstood the difference between probability and potentiality. Let me explain the difference. If we deal cards out to each one of you and you all say we're playing a game and you get four aces, what is the chance that that would happen? Is it potentially possible? Tell me. Yeah, it's potentially possible. Now, if we deal it again and you get four aces on the second hand, is it potentially possible? Is it probable? Third time we deal you a hand and you get four aces. At this point, are you thinking some? How many of here would be thinking someone's cheating if that happens? <laughs> exactly. So, what are the numbers? Let me give them to you. The expansion of the universe in order for life to occur after the single moment of creation. The expansion cannot be off by less than one one millionth, otherwise you're not here. So do me a favor, put your fingers together and just hold them up. Here's what I'm telling you. The expansion of everything you see in the universe can't be off this much. And by the way, this is actually too large. Thanks so much. So when people say, why is it rational to believe in God? Yes. I'm going to give you this much information. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you that everybody has faith. You believe that this is a colossal coincidence. Wow, look at that, it's great. And the equivalency would be like believing that you're going to get a thousand hands of aces given to you consecutively. Now, if you believe that that type of coincidence is probable, I'm going to say to you, I don't think you understand math. Now, if you say to me, it's potentially possible another universe could exist. Yes, that's correct. It is potentially possible that you could get four aces 53,000 times in a row. I am correct in that mathematically. 
Because if it happens once, it's potentially possible. But you see, you're not actually understanding the difference between potential and probability. The fact that it's potentially possible only means that if it happens once, it's potentially possible any infinite number of times that you're going to multiply it. But it's far from probable. And so when someone says to me, well, you just have blind faith. <laughs> Who has the blind faith? Really? And I remember talking to a gentleman not too long ago, and he was a scientist, and it was interesting because we were on a plane, and, and I was sitting next to him, and I was reading a book on Jesus. And he looked at me, and he said, what are you reading? And I said, well, I, I'm reading a book on Jesus. And he looked at me, and he said, oh, uh, I'm a scientist. And I decided I wasn't going to tell him I was going to PhD, be a PhD. I was just going to have some fun with him. And I said, really? He said, yes. And he had these tones about him. It was like, I don't know. It's like I was supposed to bow down and worship or something. I wasn't really sure what was going on. And I said, ever heard of the cosmological constant? And he smiled and he said, yes, I've heard of it. I said, you know, I'm just wondering one thing. If there's order in the universe, how does order come? Does it make some more sense to believe in an orderer or that order comes from chaos? And don't you have to presuppose order to do even two experiments? And by the way, I'm just sort of wondering, does H2O have to remain the same or is it a variable? <laughs> he smiled and he looked at me and he says, yes, I do believe in God. He knew where I was going. And then he said to me, but I don't believe that he cares about me. Now, I want to clarify something. Richard Dawkins says that only 8% of scientists in the National Academy of Sciences believe in God. That's a bald-faced lie. It's not true. What he's actually referring to is a statistic about a personal belief in God. Now, there is a distinction that I'm going to make here. What we found is the National Academy of Sciences are equally divided with people who believe in God and people who don't. And I'm going to tell you why. Because scientists understand what 10 to the 53rd means too. Scientists understand what this means. And even people who don't believe in God, who are astrophysics, will say things like Stephen Hawkins. He says this in Brief History of Time. He says, if we accept the universe as it presents itself, it seems that the medical, physical question, i.e. the question of God, is inescapable. Except he tries to escape it. And I've read all of these theories and basically a number of the people who have actually tried to come up with chaotic inflationary period and a bunch of other different ideas about how the universe existed, most all of them have completely gone by the wayside. And they have said things like the issue of singularity, which means there's a single origin to the universe at a beginning, to matter, space, and time. And just so we're clear, when people say matter is eternal, no, it's not. No one believes that. They're talking about the idea of matter within a closed system in this universe, no one believes it's either eternal or had a beginning. And of course the problem with matter is in the end it won't matter anyway. So I said to him these words and I want you to hear it because there's a lot of people who believe in a creator God but not a personal God and I looked at him and I said, it's illogical to believe that a, pers a, a purposeful act of creation lacks purpose. Let me say it again. It is illogical to believe that a purposeful act of creation lacks purpose. In that God purposely creates, by definition, creation has purpose. Did you hear it? You're like, uh, it's too fast. Here it is. It is illogical that a purposeful act of creation lacks purpose. In that God purposely creates, creation has, by definition, purpose. And he looked at me and he said, that makes perfect sense. I said, yes, it does. And then he said to me, I still don't believe it. Now, I want you to hear what the scientist just said. That makes perfect sense. I don't believe it. Now, let me tell you why. Because truth isn't just intellectual, it's also spiritual. And there's an aspect of it that we have to accept and believe. Because if we begin to look at the universe as being created by God, the natural question is, then what is my purpose in life? And so I'm going to tell you that we can live better, and then we can die better. Know what I mean by that? I mean that he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose, according to Jim Elliott. And I mean that in the most moments of death, no one ever repents of being a Christian. 
And I mean that on the Titanic, what you may not know is that there were people on that boat who were Christians and decided that they were going to die. Who? You know, it's funny they didn't mention this in the movie Titanic, but you remember the band on the Titanic? This was led by a Christian song leader, and a number of the people in the band were Christian, and they were asked, would you like to get on the boat? No, they're all aware of the situation. There's not enough boats. People will die. One of the most amazing things I've ever heard is what that band leader said. He said, I know how to die better than you. You get on. We'll stay here. And with that, they begin to strike up hymns and play on into the night. And I know what it's like to face death. You say, well, you're relatively young. No, not really. Relatively old as well as relatively young. But I was in Nigeria. And one of the things that sort of irks me every now and then, we hear people say, and when somebody came up to Pastor Chris yesterday, say, why don't I give this money to the poor? And you heard him say about this. You know, when you hear these things, you know, and I think to myself, ever heard of the, like the Red Cross? There's a reason there's a cross on it. You ever heard of the Salvation Army? Yeah, Christians aren't doing anything out there, are they? Of course not. And you ever heard of hospitals? You may not know this, but the hospital movement was started in Christianity. Have you ever heard of nursing? Nursing was also started as a Christian movement. The woman who started nursing took an ad out in the paper in Washington saying these words, only Christian women should apply. And so the church that I was part of, we set up medical clinics in the bush of Nigeria where people had never seen a doctor. And we would be there all day long. We'd get there at the crack of dawn. We'd stay there, and then we'd do evangelistic services at night. It was absolutely wonderful. 6,000 people had never seen a doctor came to see doctors. Thousands came to know Christ. And we were on our way back one night. And it was about 1 a.m. in the morning, and we were going through the bush, and I, my eyes were closed. I was dead tired, and I felt the car slowing down, the Jeep, actually. And as I opened my eyes, there were three or four men standing in the middle of the road with machetes and guns. As the car stopped, it was in between a bank, an embankment, and on the sides, men stood up with rifles and machetes. My good friend who was working with me, the, the Dr. Kent, he looked at me and he said, uh, doesn't look good, does it? I said, no, it doesn't. He said, what do you think our best case scenario is? I said, being robbed. He said, I think we won't talk about worst case scenario. I said, yeah. And then what began to happen is the driver began to argue with the guy in the, with a machete, and they began to argue. I'm thinking, no, you don't argue with people with machetes. No, no, this is not a good thing. And as they become more heated and more argued, I'm thinking, well, we're going to die. We're just going to die. But then I want to tell you one of the most wonderful things occurred to me. I sat there and I contemplated my death. Today, tonight, I could die. People said I might lose my head over religion, and I actually might this time. Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Thank you, sir. And then I thought, if I die, I die a happy man because I have lived my life trying to tell others about my Lord and my God, and I die doing it. And all of a sudden, a smile came to my face. I thought, hmm, okay, I'm ready. Now, I know that sounds strange, but here I am facing death, stress test, and I'm okay. Can I tell you a secret? One day, you will face it too. And just as I came to that conclusion, that I was in fact a blessed man, an older gentleman from the village came up and he began to talk to the man with the machete. 
And then he went like this to us. And the driver put it in gear, and we drove on as those two men argued. Now, I didn't feel it appropriate to ask at that moment if we stop and find out what the argument was about. I felt it was okay to leave. But I remember thinking, I have faced death. And because of my faith, I was ready. Not only can we die better, there is reasonable hope to believe that in fact there is life after death that comes from the scientific community and not just from what Jesus has said. Or to put it more correctly, I think the scientific community is now beginning to back up some of the things that Jesus says. Does everybody? No, absolutely not. There's some people who absolutely believe that you're just food for worms. But in a book written by a man named Mario Beauregard, he's a neuroethicist, a neuroscientist. Actually, he's not an ethicist, he's just a neuroscientist. And he says this, we're finding it harder and harder to get away from these what we call near-death experiences. In other words, we are finding more and more credible reports because of our life-saving techniques. In other words, because we're able to bring people back through defibrillators and all these different things. We're finding that more and more people are actually telling us about after-death experiences. He said, the problem with this is it doesn't make sense based upon a materialistic framework. In other words, if your body is just, your brain's just simply a piece of matter. In other words, if that's all it is, it doesn't make any sense. And here's why, he says, and let me explain it to you. Because there is no electrical currents going through your brain at the point of whole brain death. Let me explain it to you. If we unplug this sound system, you don't get any sound. And the reason being is because there's no electrical currents going through there. If we unplug a toaster, you don't get any toast. If we unplug a microwave, you don't get anything heated up. If we unplug your brain and your brain stops having electrical circuits, the bottom line is it ought not to register anything. Would you like to hear the rest of the story? One of the most incredible instances of a lady by the name of Pam Reynolds. And she had an aneurysm in her brain. And basically her doctor sat down with her and he said, Listen, Pam, if we operate, you're going to die. It's not going to work. And if we don't operate, you're going to die. So get your will in order because it'll just be a matter of time. How about that for a prognosis? You have two options. Quick death or death anytime we don't know of. Well, her mother went on the internet and she began to look for other options and in all honesty, she found somebody in Arizona who does a new procedure and what they would do is they would, they would lower your body temperature to 60 degrees. The problem with lowering your body temperature to 60 degrees is all of your electrical impulses in your brain, your heart, and all your major organs, everything stops. You are dead. And the hope is that they can bring you back, and as a result of the colder temperatures, we've had some success bringing people back, and we know, frankly, that cells take longer to die in colder temperatures, which is maybe why you shouldn't move to Florida, but anyway, that's a whole other story. And, and so we know all of this, so they lowered her body temperature to 60 degrees, and she says that when that occurred, and the, all the electrical stimulus or, or impulses stopped in her brain, she felt her body spirit pop out of her body. And then something remarkable happened. She began to describe the operation with absolutely no medical training at all, including what instruments were used. And so she says she saw it all occurring. She could describe it, and she even went so far as to describe the nurses' conversations and what they were talking about. With absolutely zero electrical impulses going through her brain. And when they revived her, she told them everything and they recorded it. And this is not a matter of conjecture. So what we are faced with is that there is good, credible evidence that there is life after death. I remember a lady in my church, she called me up and she said, Pastor, I want you to come over for dinner. And she was a great cook, so I was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> and she went all out. I mean, she cooked one of the best dinners I've ever had. I mean, it was, she topped her own self, which was hard to do. And right when I was in the middle of the dinner, she said to me, I have something I need to talk to you about. And I said, okay, what is it, Anne? And she said, uh, I have DNR in my will. Do not resuscitate. 
And I want you to promise me that if there ever comes a time that you'll make sure that I die. I'm going to ask the, uh, the musicians to come on up. Or, Yes, thanks so much. And, and when she said that, I looked at her and I said, Anne, are you depressed? And it was really interesting because she got indignant. She got, no, I'm not depressed. And I said, well, you know, most people that want to die are depressed. And she looked at me and she smiled. And she said, you have a PhD? I go, yes. And she goes, I know something that you don't. I said, what is it? And she said, when I was 34 years old, I was on the operating table for a gallbladder operation and my heart stopped beating. And she said, my spirit came out of my body. And I went to see Jesus. She goes, Pastor, I can't describe to you what it's like. It was the most glorious moment of my life. And I just want to make sure that those rotten children of mine won't keep me around any longer than I have to be here. <laughs> you got to love it when people are straight to the point. And I said, really? I said, what did Jesus say? And she said, he looked with those beautiful eyes. And he said to me, Anne, are you ready? I looked up at him and I said, no, Lord, I'm not. I have two small children. My husband has left me. I'm the only person who can raise these children. Please, let me go back. And he looked at me and he said, are you sure? And she said, I said, yes. And when I said yes, I felt the defibrillator on my heart go and my spirit rushed into my body and I woke up. And she said, I know what heaven is like. I don't want to be here one moment longer than I have to be. You talk about Jesus, but I've seen him. second I said well I guess that is what we teach I said and I'll make sure that when your time comes you'll be as dead as a doornail <laughs> well I moved down to Florida and oddly enough Ann did too she moved over to Fort Lauderdale no she's not a stalker she moved down to Fort Lauderdale and uh I got a phone call from her daughter. She said, uh, Mom has an aneurysm on her heart. The doctors say it's inoperable. So I called her up. I said, Anna, I understand you have an aneurysm on your aorta. She said, Isn't it wonderful? I was a little caught off guard. I, I said, and most people that I talk to have aneurysms on the aorta. They're, <laughs> it's, just, it's not really wonderful for them. She goes, but they don't know what I know. I said, you're right. She goes, isn't it wonderful how the Lord has worked this all out? She goes, I'll be dead before I hit the ground. <laughs> I've never heard that perspective before. you see the difference is Anne saw clearly and so my question is do you because one day you and I will stand before eternity and I'm going to tell you that God is the most rational thing that you can actually ever believe Today, I'd like you to make that choice. Would you bow your heads in prayer?
Father, we come before you now and we thank you for the great opportunity that we have. And Father, as we prepare our hearts, I'm going to ask you, Lord, to move upon these hearts. If you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, today is your day. If you would like to see Jesus. I'm going to ask Pastor if he will come up right now. And as you are praying, to lead you to the gates of eternity. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Please know, looking around, as even right now, God, the Holy Spirit, is knocking upon your heart's door. The Bible says, in fact, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if any will open up, Unto me, I will come in unto them. Isn't it about time you say yes to Jesus? I'm going to pray a prayer this morning. We call it the prayer of salvation. It's prayed many different ways. And I'm going to pray a prayer of salvation. It's a prayer I guarantee you, if you put your faith into it, It'll change your eternal destiny. You'll be right with God. You'll have a home in heaven. So how about it? Are you here this morning and you're not sure you're right with God? You're not sure you're ready for eternity. You're not sure that you have a home in heaven, but you want to be sure. If that's you, if you'd like to be included in this prayer I'm about to pray, would you just slip up your hand right now so that I can see it? It's a sign of your faith. It's a sign that you, you believe. Amen. God bless you. I see that hand. Thank you. God bless you. I see that hand. Thank you. Thank you. I see those hands. Four hands lifted for Jesus. How many more? Lift it up high that I can see it. I want to be included in that prayer, Pastor. Yes. Thank you. Five. Yes. Thank you. Six. Seven. Eight. Thank you. Yes, nine. God bless you. I see that hand. How many more this morning? Pastor, I believe. <laughs> I've heard Dr. Joe this morning. It's the most rational choice and decision I can make for time and for eternity. Lord, uh, uh, I lift my hand to you. I believe. Precious Jesus, keep those hands lifted up this morning. And make this prayer your prayer. Everyone, repeat this prayer after me, especially you that have lifted your hands. Own this prayer. Are you ready? Dear Jesus, I come to you right now, just as I am. I confess I'm a sinner. I have sinned. But Jesus, you're my Savior. Save me from my sin. I believe. You died for me. You paid the price for all of my sins. And I believe you rose from the dead with resurrection. Resurrection life. I want that life, Jesus. A new life. A changed life. Thank you, Jesus, for hearing me. For making me brand new. For giving me a home in heaven. I thank you, Jesus, that I am saved. In the name of Jesus, I pray this. Amen.